morning again to you. It's good to have you with us today. Um, we got a chance to sit down with Simeon this week. Uh, you know, we have people who are sharing the gospel in incredible ways. And I have to admit that Simeon's one of those guys that, you know, you hear missionaries come in. And, but when you sit down and you see uh, the work they're actually doing and uh, the dozens and dozens of church leaders that they are equipping uh, in that part of the world, uh, it's pretty amazing. It really is. And to know we have a part of that uh, is really, really nice. And one day in heaven, we'll see those people. We'll meet them. Uh, it, is, it will be amazing. So uh, again, thank you for that. Guys, you know, sometimes our plans don't happen as, they, as we had thought, right? And so we had a little change in our plans in our Thanksgiving. Uh, plans were to go down and spend the Thanksgiving with some family and my dad, the first Thanksgiving without uh, my mom, but we ended up going uh, to our youngest granddaughter. I don't know if I even mentioned because I was on sabbatical when she was born, uh, but we have a three-month-old granddaughter, Charlie. Uh, he had some of the respiratory stuff going on and was in the hospital a couple of days, but uh, she is doing well. All is good there. There seemed like a lot of, seemed like sickness dictates our plans a lot anymore uh, for some odd reason. So we are vulnerable for sure. But uh, I'm glad that you are here, and I hope that you had a wonderful um, Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, it's good to, good to have you in our time together. You know, we are in the study of the book of Acts, and as we study through the Bible, the Bible has several pictures of God's love for us and God's efforts to reach out for us. And I was thinking about some pictures in the Bible. Uh, the good shepherd who left the 99 looking for one lost sheep. Uh, the father who is waiting desperately for the prodigal son to come back home. The widow searching for one lost coin. And when she's found it, when each of these are found, they throw a party because they're celebrating. The Bible also speaks of God drawing us to himself. And the lesson that we learn here is that God loves and cares about each and every one of us. So God loves you. God knows you, loves you, is calling you specifically. First Peter chapter three says that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God has a call and a draw on each of our lives. Now, for some of us, people like me, God's power, God's love has always been there in my life, been present. I was raised in a Christian home, never got too far away from that. But we've been protected from the world and from ourselves. Sometimes the greatest danger is ourselves, you know. But we've been protected from those things. We've had guardrails in some aspect for our lives. But for other peoples, God's rescue came to them after they had been through some difficult time, perhaps even far from God, and perhaps struggling with addictions, with challenges, with distance, with dysfunction and family. And then God rescued them from all of that. Now that is true with a man named Paul. We also know him as Saul, formerly known as Saul. And I'll use the name inter interchangeably there. And God called Saul to be his missionary to the Gentile people. But whenever God saves you, whatever the circumstances are, your story is called your testimony. And our testimony is all about how God called us to himself and that we're in a relationship with God because he is so gracious, so merciful, so compassionate, and that whatever our story may be, it's not that we're the hero of it. We're not the hero, no matter what we've overcome. God is the hero. He gets the glory, not us. And the same thing is true with Saul. Saul has an amazing testimony that as you read through the Bible, you're going to find several occasions where he shares in his writings, giving all the glory to God, no doubt in his teachings, no doubt Saul pulled out his testimony frequently to talk about 
how great God was and how Jesus rescued him from a very unusual situation. You know, Paul was dramatically called by God while he was an enemy of God, while he was persecuting the church. We talked about that last week. He was blinded for three days, then he was given physical sight back, also spiritual sight as he come to know who Jesus was. And then he went on to become the greatest missionary ever, hands down. And we'll talk more about that as we get into the second half of Acts next year. And we're studying the book of Acts, however, and here we are in chapter nine today, which is Paul's testimony. Now, as I've studied through it today, I want you to think about your own life and your testimony. This might be one of the most practical messages for you that you've ever heard, because I want you to think about you as we parallel Paul, all right? You may think that your testimony is not interesting. It's not extraordinary. Nobody cares about what, where you came from or where you are, but every testimony is a miracle from God because God saved you from your sin. Every testimony, regardless of whether you were raised up in church like I was, or whether you were far from God and God drew you to himself, every testimony is a miracle. You are a miracle because God has saved you and brought you to the place that you are. So I want to challenge you today to think about and develop a familiar way to share your testimony. I want you to frame this message today personally and say, understand, I want my testimony to bring glory to God like, like Paul's did. Your testimony encourages other Christians and it evangelizes unbelievers. I want you to see your testimony as helpful to other Christians. We need to be encouraged by knowing what God's done in someone's life, but also understand that there are people who may be far from God or indifferent to God, that your testimony can have a powerful impact upon them. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is what saves people, but your testimony is what makes people listen to the gospel. And it's what makes the gospel real to them. There are people who are indifferent, I believe, to God and different to Jesus, you know, um, because they don't have anything drawing them. You are the connector. The people that God's brought into your life are there, I believe, in many cases for you to connect them to God. If God, your testimony is what makes the gospel real to people. You know, the book of Revelation says in the face of adversity that God's people overcome them by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. It's interesting. It puts the blood of the lamb, the blood of Jesus and our testimony in the same sentence. We, we know that we're nothing next to him, but the power of both of them, when the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony are combined, adversity is overcome and people are drawn to Jesus. You see, your story is a story of God's grace and God's power, and even though you may not feel like it's special, it's probably similar to most of the people that you come in contact with. Today we're going to be talking about Saul. He's an extraordinary case. Most people are not Saul's today. Most people are not being called for specific ministry. Most people are not enemies of God like Saul was. Most people are probably pretty much like you are. And whatever drew you to, to Jesus will draw them to him as well. So I'm going to give you a set of five questions today. You might write them down. Hopefully, if you're a note taker, you might write these down because these could help you to kind of think through your testimony and how the power of the word of your testimony could bring people to Jesus. So let's start with this question. What were you like as a non-Christian? What were you like as a non-Christian? And again, I tell you, for me, I grew up in a Christian home um, and uh, I, I never really got far off the track because my dad was a very strict disciplinarian and I thought he would kill me if I did anything stupid. So, you know, I was protected from myself 
uh, by a, a very uh, traditional conservative Christian parents. But you know what? At the same time, looking back, I think I was kind of pretty self-righteous because I kind of felt that. I, I really felt like that uh, we were the only ones who were right. I pretty much felt sorry for everybody else out there who thought they were right. They thought they were good, but they were obviously wrong because they didn't agree with us. So I guess in some ways, I was a little bit like Saul because that's what Saul was like. You know, he was very self-righteous. He was very critical of other people who were trying to, 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 uh, to find their way to God. Uh, and uh, he, was, he was very devout. And he believed that he was on a mission from God or for God to literally kill every Christian he could. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that I wasn't that far. I didn't ever have a desire to kill anybody. I just had kind of a self-righteousness there that, that I was kind of in, in born with, was you know, put into my life. So uh, I identify with him a little bit there. But Saul was relentless and passionate, but he was in the wrong direction. He would, what some would say, he was very sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. And you know, you're going to run into people today who are sincere in what they believe, but they may be sincerely wrong. Those people need to be directed as well. Now, I doubt that you were, or I never was, certainly that zealous against Christianity. But you know what? Satan has a way of deceiving us into thinking that we don't need Jesus. And that's exactly where Saul was. He thought he was right with God. He did not need Jesus. So think about, develop a way of explaining what you were like when you were a non-believer. Here's the second question. How did your view of Jesus change? How's your view of Jesus change? Most people are not enemies of Jesus before they come to follow him. They are not the kind of enemy that Saul was trying to wipe out all his followers. Most people are pretty indifferent about Jesus. That's been my impression. And you know, nobody's going to disagree that there's a God, most of our acquaintances, that there is a God and that he had a son named Jesus. They considered him to be a good teacher. He was probably a nice guy in most people's opinion who did good things, but he certainly is not in charge of their life. He doesn't really change anything for them. Now, Saul thought that Jesus was a blasphemer uh, who was claiming to be God himself, but he didn't think he was. But when he gave his life to Christ, his whole view of Jesus changed. He was blinded on the road to Damascus, remember? So he was humbled. He, he was left alone for three days. And then a man named Ananias came and, and healed him and taught him and baptized him. And through this painful process, Saul is humbled and convicted and converted to be a believer in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So his process of conversion was unusual and miraculous, and uh, we probably don't hear much about that today, but he came to know who Jesus was. His view of Jesus changed. And then Saul started living this new life out. In Acts chapter 9, which is where we're going to jump in in Acts today, verse 19 we read that Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. This was immediately after his conversion, several days with the disciples in Damascus. And once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God, and all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, when you give your life to Jesus, some things are going to change. They have to change if it is real. 
There's no way that we could say Saul became a believer in Jesus and then went right back to the same things he'd been doing. His life changed dramatically. And some of you probably and hopefully have your family and friends scratching their heads about you since you gave your life to Christ and wondering, who are you anymore? Because you're doing things that I don't understand. You never did these things before. Your life is different now with Jesus. You know, going to church on Sunday morning is now a priority. You know, uh, going to a Bible study, reading your Bible every day, praying before you know, meals or praying in the evening, perhaps giving to the church or serving, you know, and people go, who are you? What are you doing these things? Your life is different now. You have new priorities. Saul was killing Christian preachers and now he is one. That was pretty remarkable, wasn't it? Saul was coming to Damascus to take Christians back and change and now he's one of them and he's preaching the thing he was so adamantly against. And his former friends were kind of baffled about that. And maybe in some cases, I don't know if Paul even recognized himself when he thought only previously, just a few days before, what he had been like. He had viewed Jesus as a blasphemer and fake, but now he's publicly proclaiming that Jesus is who he said he was. He says he is the Son of God and he is the Messiah or the Christ. Now, those two titles are pretty significant and full of meaning. And we read those just a few moments ago uh, in Acts chapter 19, that he is the Son of God and the Messiah. The Son of God means that Jesus was not less than God, but that he was equal with God, literally equal with God and is God. He is divine divinity. And that was Jesus' claim many times. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You know what? That's the reason Jesus was put to death. Jesus did great things, but it's not what he did that got him in trouble is what he said. And that's how the religious leaders were so out to get him. He said he was God. In fact, Jesus not only said that, Jesus proved that by miracles, teachings, and ultimately, and most importantly, when he was raised back to life again. So he proved the claims that he made. But when you become a Christian, it's an acknowledgement that you believe that Jesus is truly God that he is God in human form. Secondly, Saul acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. Those words are interchangeably there. The anointed one who had been promised literally since the beginning of time. If you remember back in the garden, whenever Adam and Eve sinned, tempted by Satan, God said there will be a deliverer, there will be a Messiah who will restore people back to God. So he literally was, was pro- uh, prophesied back in the beginning of time in the garden. And so the title Christ means that the Holy Spirit of God resided and worked through Jesus. He is the anointed one from God, unprecedented, unparalleled, unequal. So our view of Jesus changes from him perhaps being a a good person, a good teacher, to him being the Son of God, the Savior, the King, the Christ, the Lord of our life. You know, and, and if you can't say that, If you can't say that Jesus is the Lord of your life, then you may be somewhere in the process, but you're not really a Christian because being a Christian means that he is the Lord of your life. Sometimes we soft pedal that and we say, well, you know, you're a good person and you just need to make this decision, but but you're not really a follower of Jesus until you're sold out for him. Now, Saul is repeating here what Jesus said about himself, that he was the Christ. He was the son of God. And by the way, don't let anyone tell you that Jesus didn't claim to be God. Now, that is out there somewhere. Jesus never claimed to be, that is not true, all right? That's exactly what Jesus said. That's exactly what Jesus meant. That's why they crucified him. 
That's why they put him to death, and that's why he came back to life again. And that's why we can depend upon him to save us because he was and he is God. So Saul is convinced about that. He was bold and powerful in declaring his newfound faith and his testimony. Powerful in that. By the way, Saul and Paul, again, are the same person. Don't be confused. Saul was a Hebrew name that he used as a religious Jew and as a missionary to the Gentiles. He used his Roman or Gentile name, uh, the name Paul, all right? So just to clarify that. But when you read the scripture, it's amazing just to see how the transformation in Paul's life or Saul's life, however you want to think of him, almost instantaneously. He becomes a Christian and automatically starts preaching about Jesus. So your view of Jesus has to radically change when you become a believer. Third question, what does time alone with Jesus look like for you? What does time alone with Jesus look like for you? You know, Saul wants to tell everybody about Jesus, uh, you know, this new change in his life, but he needs some seasoning. He needs some time alone with Jesus. And so there is a time gap right here in Acts chapter 9 between a couple of verses. You know, not everything happened immediately uh, in the life of Jesus. There, there were time gaps there. And there's a time gap here in Acts chapter 9. And Saul explains it in Galatians chapter 1. He says, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that I am writing you, what I'm writing you is no lie. So when all this happens in Saul's life, you might think, well, Saul's going to race back to Jerusalem to try to convince the apostles that he is now a follower of Jesus to meet with them and compare notes, right? So they are teaching the same thing, but he didn't do that. In fact, he said, I didn't consult any human being but he went to Arabia. Now, Arabia was a desert area. Arabia is where Moses was when God sent him there to get the Ten Commandments. Arabia is where Elijah went when he went to be alone with God. And so Saul goes there to be alone with God. He spent time alone for seemingly three years preparing for the ministry God had called him to. Saul knew that he needed some time alone with God to be seasoned, some solitude to come to know Jesus better. You know, it wasn't like he didn't know the Bible. Saul knew the Bible very well, but he didn't know Jesus. So he needed time in prayer and time in talking and listening to God, time in repenting of his past, time in worshiping and just spending time with God. So here's the point that we need to know. We all need time with God. We all do. Now, you probably can't take three years and go away into the desert to do that, but you do need to take some time regular to get to know Jesus better. And you say, but you don't know how busy I am. I know you're busy. How, you know, how do I know that? Because we all are busy. I don't know anybody who's not busy. Retired people are busy, right? You know, you get retired and somebody puts you to work. So we're all busy. There's enough stuff in the world to occupy every moment of our life. And maybe that's how you live life. But here's the thing. You have time to spend time with Jesus. 
You have to have that. You cannot survive spiritually without that. So I don't know anybody in this world that doesn't have time to read the Bible and pray if they choose to. A few minutes a day to spend time with God. Get up a little early, turn off the TV a little sooner, lay down your phone, just set with no interruption, read the Bible and have time with Jesus. You can do this. You must do this to survive. And if you don't have some time to, to spend time with Jesus, there's something wrong in your walk with him. As simple as that. And you are weakened because you don't take that time. Well, Saul spent three years at least alone with God preparing, and then he went back to Damascus. So he returned back to the city where he had been converted to Jesus. Pick it up in Acts chapter 9, verse 23. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy against the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. So after some time alone with God, he goes back to Damascus and he starts preaching again, but this time there's a lot more opposition and they want to put him to death. So that brings us to our next, next question that, that maybe some of you need to consider. How have you suffered for Christ? How have you suffered for Christ? Um, the former friends of Saul are now enemies, and they've not forgotten about him. So there's going to be some persecution about him personally. They plot to kill him. He finds out his fellow Christians help him. They come to his rescue. His enemies are watching the gates. You know, he's in hiding in the city. They're watching the gate to capture him so he can't leave. But he's put in a basket and lowered down over the wall at night. You know, Jesus said that we should count the cost of following him uh, because we will lose family and friends if we do. And that sometimes happens, doesn't it? We lose something minor to gain something major. And that's what happened to Saul. His old friends are now out to kill him. So his transformation was complete or was, was really happening major, but the other guys hadn't changed at all. But keep in mind, here was a guy who had boldly gone to Damascus in control, was now sneaking out of town in the middle of the night in a laundry basket over the wall. And I just had this mental picture of that, you know, they're trying to be so quiet, they're lowering him down, you know, Paul's hunched over in the basket, trying to avoid detection, sneaking over the wall, getting out there in the middle of the night by himself. How humbling could that be? Paul had to go through a great deal of humbling, didn't he? You know, maybe some of you have discovered that your old friends or your family members might turn their back on you since you gave your life to Christ. Maybe those friends don't call you as much as they used to. Uh, maybe they, they just assume that you don't want to go back to the lifestyle that you had before because they're seeing a change, which is good. Uh, they know that you're different now, and that hurts a little bit. You know, rejection is one way that we can suffer for Christ. Being rejected and being misunderstood by people when we stand for the truth of God's word, the world is not going to understand it. And some of the people that we care for the most are not going to get it. They're just not going to understand where we are now. And part of being a Christian is suffering for Christ. Sometimes we suffer for our sins. We do things we know better than, than we should do. And we learn from the experience. We grow. Sometimes we suffer because others feel guilty when they see us. They, they see us and the light that we have in our life exposes their sin and their darkness. And sometimes our paths catches up with us and we suffer, right? In unexpected ways. 
And that's what happened to Saul. He escaped to Jerusalem. He tried to join up with the believers and disciples there. But they also knew about his past, and they didn't believe he had changed because they hadn't seen this transformation in him. You know, the last time they had seen him, uh, he was trying to kill them. And now he comes back and he wants to be a part of the church family, right? And what happened naturally, they're like, no, I don't think so. They were very, you know, concerned. They kind of kept him at arm's length. Have you ever been hurt by other Christians? If you have, it's, it's a special kind of hurt, isn't it? It's a hurt worse than most others for most people. But you know what? If you have, you're in good company with Jesus and with Saul. Saul went through some hurt, some rejection here. And sometimes we have to be patient with other Christians as well. Christians are not perfect either. And sometimes it's a wise and natural hesitancy that someone might have. It would be like someone who had had a a horrible, dangerous past showing up and suddenly expecting everybody to greet them with open arms. Just, you know, come on in, just come on into our, our, our fold here. Christians are to be welcoming, but we're not to be naive and we have our, and leave ourselves open to danger of the unknown. You know, we have to be cautious about that. People have to earn trust. And that's what happened with Saul. He must have felt like a man without a, ter- without a home or without a nation for some time, a, a country or people. His past friends want to kill him. His new acquaintances and brothers and sisters in Christ are hesitant to accept him. He's been alone for years. He needs community. He is suffering greatly. He is really hurting. But you know what? Suffering has its rewards because suffering is an appropriate and opportunity to really learn more about Jesus. In his suffering, he learned about Jesus. Paul writes in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to him in his death. I want to know Jesus even through suffering for him. In our suffering, we come to know Jesus better the suffering son of God. Suffering also allows us to become more like Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10 says that Jesus was made perfect through his suffering. So our suffering makes us more like Jesus Christ and our suffering makes our testimony more powerful. How can we talk about the testimony of Saul so boldly? Because he suffered a lot for it. That was a big distinguishing factor of Paul's life, that he suffered for Christ and he became more like Christ in his suffering. Here's the last question. What part does church community play in your life? What part does church community play? You can't have just a personal relationship with Jesus. It has to include the rest of his family. There have to be some other people a part of that. I've just watched this over the years. I've watched people who felt like giving their life to Christ was just was a one and done deal. And and then they were gone. And, And that person normally, most cases, I don't know about 100%, but in most cases, wanders away from God. We can't do it alone. We just can't do it alone. We have to have community as well. Uh, One person is not a family. It takes other people, God's family, the church. And Saul knew that. Saul needed community. He wasn't a lone ranger. He needed somebody in his life to encourage him and challenge and be taught by him and to teach him. In verse 27, it says, Barnabas took him aside and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Remember Barnabas? 
We talked about him several weeks ago. He was the son of encouragement. He was the first to give, uh, sell land and give it to, to help the poor. And he encouraged people, earned a new name. He was a great leader and became a great missionary with Paul. But Paul was brought into the fold of the church by Barnabas. You know, being an encourager is an amazing gift. Every one of us could do that. Every one of us can be an encourager there. Paul went on to become a greater leader than Barnabas, but he could only do so because Barnabas stood up for him. And I think that's a call that every one of us should aspire to, to be like Barnabas. We can be an encourager to other people. And you can do that by just connecting people, by inviting people to come to worship with you, by getting to know people who come to our church, young believers, getting to know them, take them out to lunch, introduce them to others, make the connections with other believers. And that's kind of what Barnabas did for Saul. And soon the church began to trust him and love him as well. But Saul was so bold and courageous in his new faith that he was also controversial. And again, he had to leave town quickly. He got into it with the Hellenistic Jews very quickly. They tried to kill him. Things got hot. And so they sent him away to Caesarea and then Tarsus, his hometown. And then in verse 31, it says, when the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace, and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it focused, it increased in numbers. So with Saul now on team Jesus, things are different. The church enjoys peace and growth. It began to multiply in that day. It says they lived in the fear of the Lord. They had seen the power of God in many ways, including the change in Saul. And they knew God's power and they experienced the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. You know, I love these stories that, that, we, that we visit and we read about how God transformed people. But you also need to understand that every one of us are called to be transformed as well. Maybe it might not be as dramatic, but you are a living testimony of God's grace and God's power to save someone. You know, you weren't perfect before you came to know the Lord, even if you were raised in a Christian home. People need to know and you need to share what Jesus has done in your life. So these five things, what were you like as a non-Christian? How did your view of Jesus change? What does your time now with Jesus look like to you? How have you suffered for Christ? And what part does church community play in your life? You know, I was thinking about this and about how practical this is. And you don't have to tell everybody all these things. But as you have relationships with people, it is necessary that you filter some of this information back. You know, it may, be, it may be something as simple as inviting someone to come to church with you. And if they push back a little bit, then, you all, have, then you all, all you have to say is, you know what, I used to feel like that before. Before I gave my life to Christ, I felt like that. I thought it would be silly to go to church and that it would be silly to serve and do these things that I'm doing now. But, but now that I've given my life to Christ, I think differently about it. And I think differently about Jesus. I used to think Jesus was just a good man and he was a good teacher, but now I've come to know that Jesus is much more than that. And these are the changes that I've made in my life. And yeah, there's been some challenges in life and I haven't always been perfect, but the point is that I'm doing my best. I'm living for Christ. And, and a big part of that is church community. I need other people in my life. I need to be taught. I need to be encouraged. I need to worship. See, you kind of blend those things in, in kind of a seamless way that's unique to you and your testimony. You know, this series that we're doing on the book of Acts, we called it Sent. And I hope that you see that it's not just the apostles who were sent. 
That it's not just the, 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 the uh, Saul, men like Saul who were called and saved dramatically that was sent. I hope you see that every one of us are to be sent. The church survives, the church grows because we need a vision and a picture of ourselves as sent. It began then, but it continued down through time. Paul used his testimony to lead people to Jesus. Every part of Paul, his education, his previous life, everything was defined and refocused re, uh, on leading people to Jesus because he knew he was sent. He knew he was sent. You and I have been given a testimony. It's unique to us, but we've been given that to lead people to Jesus because we too are sent. We are sent. And the reason that we are sent is, that, is the fact that Jesus was sent. He was sent to this earth to save us. And so the circle just comes right back around. He was sent to save us, and we are sent to point people to Jesus. I hope that's encouraging to you. I hope you start thinking about how you can translate your life. Maybe you've never, ever done this before, but take your past, how you were brought to Jesus, to share with, the, with other people. It is the most powerful thing that you can do, short of the Scripture. Obviously, the Word of God and the power of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb come together to bring people to hope. This morning, if you're here and you have never given your life to Christ, or if you want to take the next step on your journey and you're not even sure what it is, we're going to give you a few moments to do that. Uh, Tony will be up front. I think Gracie's going to step up to be available as well to pray with you. We're going to be up here. We would love to take a few moments in prayer. You're free to come up and pray uh, if you want to do that just on your own or with someone, but whatever it may be, perhaps we just need to be encouraged that God has called us and now God has sent us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, it's inspiring to read about the power of the gospel to change lives. And Lord, we know that wasn't limited to Bible days, that God, that power still continues today. And Lord, I pray that you would motivate us, God, to see ourselves as sent, that Lord, you would help us take our, our testimony, uh, the story of our salvation, of our conversion, of our life, and use it for your glory. Father, I pray you would be glorified in everything we do and say. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.